world is going to hate them because of him. They're going to hate him, but they hate them because they hated him. And so in light of that, in light of the fact that they're going to hate, hate you, here's what I'm saying to you. Look down at verses four to six real quick. I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you might remember that I told them to you. Stop real quick there. That means that Jesus is about to say, I know what's coming. I want you to know that I told you in advance this was going to happen so that you understand that this is not a shock. In fact, this is not an accident. This is intentional. What you're about to see in the next couple of chapters, when Jesus goes to the garden, he prays, and, and the guards come and arrest him, and Judas gives him that kiss on the cheek, and then everybody comes in. All of this is Jesus in control. And so he's telling them, I have communicated all of this. This departure that I'm about to go on is intended, and I am preparing you for what is going to be my absence. What could easily be understood as a tragedy is not that at all. It's intentional. So he continues. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Actually, they did. They did earlier in John 14, which is part of this farewell. They did. All, so he's, he's basically saying like, uh, you're not asking me now. You did before, but I already told you where I'm going. But um, I'm going to the Father. He said, no one asks me now. So he's going to him who sent me, he says. And then look at verse six. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I don't know where it came into the Christian faith I don't know if it was a, a kind of a mix of uh, our, our bootstrap American Christianity, whether it was kind of a, a hyper-awareness of God's sovereignty. I don't know if it was like some, some like necessary or logical conclusion from the idea that, that God is in control of all things. But we've grown to this understanding that somehow when things happen, a good Christian isn't supposed to have an emotional reaction to it, right? I hope that's not the case if you've been here long enough. I hope you've kind of seen that that's not entirely accurate. But there's this thought that like, well, if God's in it, if God's calling, if, God, if Jesus is saying I'm about to leave, I'm, well, I've got to be okay with that. Jesus is acknowledging, I'm about to leave. There's a transition going on and sorrow has entered your heart. There is a sadness here. Why? Because he's leaving. He's not gonna be with them anymore. He's been with them for three years and not just like around them for three, like living in their, like with them all the time for three years. And he's about to not be. And he says, sorrow's entered your heart. He doesn't chastise them for it. He doesn't tell them you need to get more faith. Just kind of acknowledges it. It's okay, you're sad, I get it. But something else is happening too. Look down at verse seven. Nevertheless, 
I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Nevertheless, I know you're sad, and, and it's okay to be sad, but nevertheless, I'm gonna tell you, in the midst of your sadness, it's actually to your advantage, he says. Advantage means, um, it, it, it means this is a better situation for you. He's saying what is about to happen is actually better for you than what has been. I'm, I'm leaving and I know that makes you sad, but what is happening, what is going to happen is that the situation will end up better than the one you're in currently. But how, right? I'd imagine of all the hard sells in the world, that was a hard one, right? Like you have face-to-face -face access with Jesus and he's like, listen, you're not gonna have face-to-face -face access with me anymore, but it's actually better. Come on, man. Like, no, 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 you, How are you gonna pass that off? Like, how is that ever going to be better? Well, he says, because unless I go, the helper's not gonna come. Well, that word helper, okay, that can mean a lot of different things. It can mean advocate. Uh, it, it probably has some sense of that here, but, but here it means more that someone who brings needed aid that makes sense as a helper. So Jesus is saying that this person that's a very important category we're gonna get back to in a second. This person I'm gonna to send to you is going to bring you aid in the midst of your need. And part of that need is of course the absence, the physical absence of Jesus. Now, I said this person, that's an important category. Because, and I know it'll shock some of you because this is a Presbyterian church. I'm about to say two words that don't often get said in the Presbyterian church. The helper is the Holy Spirit. <gasps> okay? All right, Holy Spirit. It's a joke. I mean, we're not really like that, but we do have that reputation. Um, and this, this helper that is the Holy Spirit is a person. And here's why that matters. Because Jesus is a person. And you cannot replace a person and say it's going to be better and replace that person with a force, with a power, with some kind of abstraction that's there to just make you awesome. Personal presence can only be improved on by more personal presence. And so that is what is happening here. The Holy Spirit, okay, and, and listen, if you're new to the church, Holy Spirit, I, you've probably heard the term generally in like exorcist movies, right? And okay, but Christians believe that God exists as one God in three persons, one what and three who's. I know it's a weird math problem. It's really not God, all are fully God, but each has their own role and they all have their individual personhood. And so the Holy Spirit is a member of that Godhead the third person of the Trinity. So Jesus is saying that when I leave you, in fact, when I, when I, at this point, he's talking about the whole lump sum, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, going up and being with the Father. When I do that, I will send to you the Holy Spirit and this person will be a helper to you. With me? All right. So what? Right? Great, it's still not you, Jesus. So what? Well, here's what he's gonna do. Let's look first at conviction. Look down at verses eight to 11. 
When he comes, he's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. All right, tons of Christianese there, right? Tons of churchy words. If you're, not, if you're not a churchy person, you're like, I don't understand what any of that means, or you think you understand what it means. Thankfully, Jesus actually explains what he means, okay? But let's, let's uh, get into that, okay? Conviction, first and foremost. In this context, that word means to expose and to convince, okay? To expose something and to convince you of it. And so, first off, he says he's going to convict the world, okay, he's going to convict the world concerning sin. And then he goes on to describe that because, because they will see that they don't believe in me. Now, before we move on, I want to just kind of define another term for you because we all have our understandings of this. And that's that three-letter word, sin. Most of the time in our culture, in our context, we see the word sin and we think behaviors we think a certain set of behaviors. And strangely enough, depending on your generation, those behaviors can shift, right? Now, we kind of all think, like, we have this vague notion of all of, at least what the churchy people would say sin is. But then all of us have this, or each of us have our own kind of understanding of what the real bad stuff is. And, and it tends to vary, again, depending on your generation. But in the Bible, sin is more than a behavior. It's a fundamental posture. If 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 relationship with God is what it means to be fully human, we were made to be dependent on him, sin is a posture that is turned away from him, that is away from him in everything that we do. And that can look very immoral, and thus behaviors that we all think of. But it doesn't have to. And everyone in this room knows that self-righteous person who's super self-righteous, looks down on everybody else, thinks they're awesome, knows that it, maybe you're that person. Ooh, okay, maybe. But think you're awesome and, and um, kind of not only look down on others that haven't gotten it together like you, but, um, but in fact don't think that you need much help from God in doing what you do. Maintaining your image, maintaining your status. The Bible calls that sin too. It calls not depending on Jesus sin. Okay, so when we're talking about sin, we're not just talking about a certain set of behaviors that the Holy Spirit's gonna come and convict the world of all of its bad behaviors. What Jesus is saying is that he's coming to the world to convince it of their fundamental posture away from him, away from the Lord. That's why he says, because of sin, he says, convicting them of sin because they don't believe in me. They're not bent towards me. Believe is a, word, is a weird word for us. We often think of it just in terms of intellectual um, uh, adherence to something. Belief meant trust. It meant faith. He's talking about holding to me. He's saying, so because they are not with me, they're convicted of sin. But that doesn't, that's not all he says. The Holy Spirit's also going to convict of righteousness because he goes to the Father. Righteousness, again, another word that we don't use often. A lot of times we think it means kind of this moral superiority, moral goodness. It doesn't mean that here. Okay? Let me slow down a second. Take a breath for all of you. Some of you are like, can't keep up. Righteousness here means faithfulness to a promise. As a matter of fact, most of the time in the Bible, that's what it means. 
Because there's no such thing as like abstract goodness. It's kind of all defined by God's promise-bound relationships. And so to say righteousness, what he means is faithfulness to a promise. Well, what promise? Well, I said that we were made for dependence on God but turned away from him. Right there in that moment when that happened, God made a promise to make all things better, that he would fix our sin, that he would fix our problem. And that the entire Bible, as we get to even right here in John's Gospel, chapter 16, is the, is God, the working out of God answering that promise. And so when Jesus says that he's going to convict the world of righteousness, what he means is I'm, he's going to convict the world that I am the answer to God's promise. I am the righteousness of God, the faithfulness of God. That, that problem that you've just been convicted of, that your sin, I am the answer to that. And you, and you know how you know that? Because I'm going to the Father. I'm ascending to the Father. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die, which is guilt for sin that I don't have. I'm going to be raised, which means I'm justified. I'm not, I'm, I, I'm innocent. And then I'm going to ascend to the Father. I am God's answer to that problem. And then he says, judgment. He's going to convict them of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now here's something. There are, I'll, I'll tell you this. There are very few places, if you... If you're in churches and the preacher stands up all the time and he, he talks about the Greek, okay? Let me tell you something. What that ends up communicating to you is, man, if I knew Greek, I would really understand the Bible. <sighs> there are these guys, they're called translators. They know these languages really well. And you know what? The, most of the time, if you look in the original language, what you get is the same thing that's in your Bible, okay? So most of the time, there is not that much that, that you're gonna be able to get. There might be nuances, there might be things like that that might help your understanding, but nothing's like, if I had, uh, back before I went to seminary, my beautiful wife got me this study Bible, and it was the Greek, Greek and Hebrew keyword study Bible, and it had a key on the front of it, and the entire implication was, we are about to unlock the meaning of scripture for you. You know what, every time it would have an underline with like a number next to it and you'd go back in the back and it'd be like, and this word it's underlined is, uh, is uh, father. And then you'd flip to the back and you'd go, okay, what's that? Oh, there's the Greek word and it means father. <laughs> Useless, okay? So there are a few times, however, in which there are nuances that you can't see in the English because we don't have the same, um, gr you know, grammar forms and things like that. One of them is sitting right here. So here's what you can't see. When he says judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, that is in a grammatical form that means it's a current condition that continues, okay? Or rather, something that has happened and continues to go on. So the ruler of this world, what does he mean? He's talking about He's talking about the fact, the ruler of this world that he means, is not Caesar, it's not, it's Satan. Because he is, his principle of betrayal of God, of being turned away from God, has, has been at work and has kind of owned things since the fall. But what Jesus is saying is that the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to convict, he's going to expose and convince 
that this situation has changed. That in fact, Jesus now rules. So what does this mean? Holy Spirit's gonna come, he's gonna convict you of sin, showing that you have this problem, of righteousness, showing that I'm the answer to the problem, and judgment, meaning that I'm now the ruler of the world. Friends, that is the gospel. So when he says the Holy Spirit's gonna come, this is all very complex language for, he's gonna come and convince you and convince the world of the gospel. So Jesus has just, his disciples have just been told they are going to be hated by the world. There's 12 of them, actually 11 at this point. One is out doing his thing. There's 11 dudes in this room. And these 11 dudes have been told, you've got to go on and you're going to keep doing stuff and abide in me as I abide in you. And this is going to be great and blah, blah, blah. And oh, by the way, as you're out doing ministry, just know the world is going to hate you. They hated me. They're going to hate you. And all of them would be thinking, then how are we going to do this? And Jesus says to them, don't worry. I'm sending the helper and he's going to do it. You're not going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You're not going to convict them of the gospel. I am, or rather, the Spirit is. He will be the one that goes and does that. With me? That's not all, though. He does more. Look down at verses 12 to 15. Still have many things to say to you. You cannot bear them now, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, okay? So here, Jesus is very explicit. That helper is the spirit of truth. Um, now, that is another title of the Holy Spirit, okay? So when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, he says he's gonna guide you into all truth. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. What that doesn't mean is that the Holy Spirit keeps every Christian from any error. <laughs> that clearly is not the case, Okay? No church, this one or another one. Listen, I am, I am in this tradition for a reason, but no church has the corner of the market on truth. None, okay? None of them do. We're all probably wrong in something, and most of the time we probably won't find out till we go up and Jesus teaches us from, from his own mouth. And we go, ah, oh, well, messed that one up, sorry. He's not saying we're gonna keep whole Christians from all errors. It means if you learn any kind of truth, it will come from the Holy Spirit. This is kind of important. If you're, if you're a Bible reader and you read John's gospel a lot or have read John's gospel, he uses the word all a lot. When he, mean, when he says all, we tend to think every, so if he says all people, we think every person distributively. Like if I were to say all of us, we would, we would go, oh, he means every, each and every one of us. When John uses the word all, most of the time what he means is all kinds. Like all kinds. So when he says he's going to lead you into all truth, he doesn't mean that each and every thought of your mind is going to be kept from error. That would be awesome and terrible at the same time, right? Because we would be an arrogant group of people if that were the case. Instead, what he means is if you're going to learn any kind of truth, it's going to come from him. And then he says this. He's going to take whatever, he's not going to speak on his own authority. He's going to, whatever he hears, he will speak and what he, he'll declare to you the things that are to come. Okay, so here's kind of another highlight. This is one of these moments where, where Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain and lets us into the life of the Trinity. 
There is this sense of deference that goes on within the Godhead, father to son, son to father, spirit to, you get the idea. Where the Holy Spirit does not feel some kind of ego-driven need to shine a light on himself, but instead what he's saying is, I'm gonna, he's going to make much of Jesus for us, for you in this case. Okay? So here's what's important. With Jesus gone, the disciples will be worried about who they can rely on for the teaching they've gotten. And they should, because it's been clear if you've read the Gospels at all, these dudes never get it. Right? They, Jesus tells them something, and then they're like, I have a sword? And Jesus is like, that's enough. You know, like, there's all this time of like Jesus just kind of going, how long am I going to be with you? Like, you're not, you don't ever get it. And, and so they should, they should be concerned. Jesus has been teaching them from his very mouth, and they're like, we still haven't gotten it. They're confused even now. What do you mean? What does he mean by raised from the dead? It's literally words that the disciples said when he said, I'm going to be raised from the dead. What must he mean by raised from the dead? I don't know. Raised from the dead. You know, like they don't seem to get it. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand right now. But right now you are limited by the fact that if you're going to learn anything, I have to be physically with you. But there's going to come a point. When I go, I'm going to send the Spirit. And the Spirit will be with you no matter where you go. Right now, if you're going to learn anything, if, you're going to, if anyone's going to be convicted, they have to be with me, Jesus is saying. You don't understand. When I go, the one who does all that's going to be with you and, you and you and you and you and you and you and you wherever you go. All right. So what does this have to do with Holy Cross, especially in the midst of this transition time, right? Well, Jesus' disciples were about to be in a position they weren't used to. And that brings about fear, right? What, what does this mean for us? What's this going to look like? Will I be okay? Jesus is saying he's going to the Father, which sounds great for him, but what about us? Now, let's be honest, okay? Again, no delusions of grandeur. They're talking about Jesus, okay? They're talking about Jesus. But I think some of the emotions are similar, and so in light of that, let's look at the one who changes us, okay? Jesus is clear that after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the ascension, it's going to be the spirit that is at work, right? That it's the spirit that works in us to bring about conviction of change. Here's why that matters. The Holy Spirit is not moving on. The Holy Spirit is not done with Holy Cross. And so if you've experienced change here at Holy Cross, whether that's becoming a Christian, which some of you have, whether it's taking your faith seriously for the first time, which some of you have, whether it's just seeing significant transformation, I need to tell you, that is because of the Spirit of God, not any one person. Not any one person. listen close. If you've experienced this, it isn't because anyone is so unique that they finally convinced you. Can I tell you, that is not the gospel. The gospel is not that you got it together enough, and it's not that there's someone else who has it together enough to be able to get you together. 
right? That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you couldn't figure out how to get right with God and someone else couldn't convince you how to get right with God. It's that the spirit of God sovereignly invaded your life, brought you to new life and gave you faith and repentance. That is the gospel. So does that mean that your small group leader or one of the elders or Kent or I am somehow pointless in this whole thing? No, of course not. No one is gonna argue that. We're not gonna argue that. But what it does mean is that none of us are essential to that. Not a one of us. There was, a, there was an interview done. I, I've, um, for some reason, gotten into the, the Netflix David Letterman interview show, you know, that's out there and he interviews people. I actually think he's a fairly good interviewer. Right? It's funny. I, I never thought of him as that, but he was interviewing one of the episodes. He's interviewing Billie Eilish and, and one of the things I know everyone's like, Ugh, okay, I get it, but just follow me. She was commenting on the fact that she finds great comfort in the fact that she will be forgotten. That we're all going to be forgotten. And most of us, we go, oh, that sounds horrible. And what she's saying is, no, it's great. Because what that means is, is that not only will all the great stuff, like, yeah, we're going to be remembered. We'll be remembered probably by our kids, certainly by our kids, probably by our grandkids, and maybe by our great-grandkids. If, you know, kind of that age, maybe, maybe if we're lucky, a great-grandkids will, I mean, I remember my great-grandmother, but all she did was sit in the chair and grumble at everybody. Like, that's all she did. Life keeps going. And the church is the same. There is no one, God buries his workers and continues with his work because the spirit of God is the one who is active in the midst of it. This is why Jesus says it is better to have the spirit in your life than his physical presence because Jesus could only be at one place and at one time. The spirit goes everywhere you go and is working to change you according to his grace and uses idiots like me. And if he can use an idiot like me, then he can use anyone. When a pastor, an elder, or a leader leaves, Friends, you don't have to fear because the change in your life was not because of them. It was because of the Spirit of God. Okay? This passage also teaches about the one who teaches us. Okay? So look, look, listen. A pastor is first and foremost a communicator. I, I tell this to, to um, people all the time, pastors that I, that I coach, uh, church planners I coach, that, that the two primary jobs of pastors are to preach the gospel and develop leaders who can go do ministry, right? Like that's what we're called to do, equip the saints for the work of ministry. The big difference in our particular tradition between a ruling elder like Jason and Jason and Jerry and Abe and Dan um, and a teaching elder like me and Kent is that, is that call to preach, that call to be, a, not to do ministry, but to preach the gospel. I take that seriously. And I would like to think all the time I've spent over the years trying to get better at it has been helpful, okay? But that said, the New Testament, and especially this passage, tells us that it is the Holy Spirit who teaches us truth, not the speaker. Look, I think I've told the story a couple times, but I remember a while back, years bleed together now, especially after COVID, it's like, you, you don't even realize like, oh, that was two years of our life. Um, but I was approached by someone 
after service, and one of the things they, they told us, told me, they said, oh, you know, Rick, when you said blah, 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 it was just so meaningful, and, 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 and that really convicted me, and da-da-da-da. And I sat there, I was like, oh, that's great. And they walked away, and I was like, I don't think I said that. So I went back, and I listened to the recording, and I didn't say that. I didn't even say anything close to that. Like, it wasn't like, oh, they just, they mixed the words up a little bit, you know, or got the quote wrong. No, like, that was not the point of anything I was talking about. The Spirit of God decided to teach someone something during my preaching that I didn't intend at all. And it, like, changed them. Literally, I had nothing to do with it. I don't, I don't know who they were hearing, what words, it was like, wasn't me, I can tell you. Like, listen to the recording, it wasn't me. Again, does that mean the one preaching doesn't matter? Not exactly, but can I tell you something? I can't change your heart. I, may, I might be able to make you laugh. I can't change your heart. I can't change my heart. Certainly can't change your heart. Remember what we said last week and what I've said here this morning. Our nature is to suppress the truth I can't work against that. There is no communicator who can talk to you in a winsome enough way to keep the human heart left to itself from suppressing what it says, what he says or she says. Like there's nothing that we can say. If you have benefited at all from what I've done here, recognize these aren't my thoughts or ideas. I'm simply communicating the scripture and the implications of it. Okay, and we learn, and I don't just mean head knowledge, because we can have a lot of stuff up here that doesn't make any difference in our lives, right? But I mean like real life-changing knowledge. If we have that, that is because the Spirit of God sovereignly decides in his good time. Sometimes that timing doesn't make sense, but he, to us at least, but he decides in his good time that now is the time for you to get it. It isn't because we earned it, and it isn't because the guy talking is good enough. It's not the gospel. It's because he is gracious to us. And this is why Jesus said it is better for him to go and send the Spirit. Because if you are dependent on a physical person to be present with you to learn, that means that every time you're going to learn truth, you have to be in the presence of that person. But if the Spirit of God is sent to you, the presence of that person is with you everywhere. Whether you're here on a Sunday morning hearing someone preach, you're at home reading your Bible, reading a book by one of the saints who's gone before us, or, or talking in your small group and someone's preaching the gospel to you there, he's with you. And he's communicating the truth to you. That's why, that is, listen, if, if we at this church were so hooked on the fact that like you need to hear something from this guy standing right here and he's got to make no sense why we are so focused on our groups. I've told this story before, I'm going to tell it again. You do realize that almost every one of you who have come to Jesus in this church, and there's, there's a lot of you, have done so not in a row, but in a living room, in a circle, in a group, with other people who are communicating the gospel to you there as well. Because the Spirit of God is with you. It is my hope that the Spirit of God has been pleased to use the ridiculous ways that I speak to make the gospel clear to you. But if he has, that is because the Spirit of God is gracious to you. 
And so, if he can make my ridiculous speaking clear, he can make anybody clear. Here's the truth, in conclusion. The glory of the gospel is that it's not about you. And it's not about me. And more glorious than that, it's not about any pastor. It's not about any leader. It is Jesus, by his spirit, who changes us, who teaches us, and who holds on to us. That is the way it has always been. And that is the way it will be till the restoration of all things. Because the one essential active person in the life of every Christian, you cannot lose. Because he is always with you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we pondered these parting words, we just ask, Holy Spirit, especially from you, that you would convince us and comfort us by your presence. That as you unite us closer and closer to Jesus and and apply his work to us, that we would not only understand, but take advantage of the the riches of Christ and the richness of Christ. And that we would see your graciousness to us and delight in it. We ask that you would do this in Christ's name.